We're going to spend some time this morning in Nahum chapter 2. I want to get us thinking a little bit to prepare us for that. So here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about generosity. I love the word generosity. Who would you say is the most generous person you know of or know? Know or know of? Maybe you're thinking of a professional philanthropist. Maybe someone like Bill Gates that has given millions of dollars to charitable causes. Or Oprah, who's given millions of dollars to charitable causes. Maybe when you think of generosity, different sayings or slogans come to mind. Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker, says, true living involves giving. That's kind of how he communicates to people the need for us to live generously. Perhaps you know someone personally that is a very generous person in your family or in this church. And they may not have the wherewithal that famous people do, but you know they're giving a lot of their finances and their treasures away to other people, and they're a huge blessing to others. We could spend some time questioning people's motives. We could ask, well, why, why do millionaires give their money away? Why do philanthropists make it a habit of funding charities? We could talk about that. And we'd probably discover that some people that give generously do so out of a pure heart and other people maybe do so because they're wanting something back. But here's the thing. If you want to identify the most generous being that's ever existed, you're going to need to talk about God because God is an incredibly generous God. In fact, your life is the result of God's generosity. Generosity is blessing. Blessing is generosity. And if you're alive and you're well, God has been generous to you. God is generous to us in so many ways. And focusing in on God's generosity is not just an extra. It's not like a secondary aspect to our faith, it's actually an essential understanding. Because if I understand the generosity of God, my life's going to be different. Guaranteed. My life's going to be different. So today, as we look at Nahum, I want to focus in on this theme of God's generosity to us, but this isn't a giving sermon. This isn't a giving sermon. This isn't a where do I give my money sermon? This is a different aspect of generosity that we see in God. But before we go to Nahum, I want to take us back about a century and a half to the prophet Jonah. So if we have our timeline right, and of course it could be a little off, but roughly 150 years before Nahum, the prophet Jonah, who was a Jewish prophet, who was used to being called up by God to preach truth to his own people, was given what he considered an unreasonable assignment from God. God asked him to get on his walking shoes and head on up to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria. 
So let's just look at a couple of passages in Jonah to learn something about God, which will help us in our understanding of what's going on in Nahum. So first of all, we have the mission that God assigns Jonah to fulfill in verses one and two of the first chapter of Jonah. There it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. So that's Jonah's assignment. That big old evil city in the north. I'm getting a little tired of their evil doing. And I want you to go and get some preaching done. And so we know that Jonah initially resisted. And while he should have headed north, he headed west. And we have the whole swallowed up by the fish event, spit out on dry land. And eventually, surprise, surprise, this is like totally shocking. Jonah does what God wants him to do. Could have avoided all the time in the fish if he'd have just done it in the first place. Here's the response to Jonah's preaching, found in chapter 3, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, which was a sign of abject and total surrender to God. It's like, we surrender, we give up. How many of them did that? From the greatest of them to the least of them. Radical response to probably what was a mediocre sermon. Delivered from a guy who didn't have his heart into it, didn't want to do it, probably was dragging his knuckles through the streets of Nineveh. But the radical response is that everybody in that generation was converted. And then we ask ourselves the question, why? Why did God do that? What motivated that? Where did that come from? Why all of a sudden is God setting his sights on Nineveh? So you go to the fourth chapter. And we see a glimpse into God's heart. In chapter 4, verse 11. God says, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. When God assessed Nineveh, his heart was grieved by their sin and broken by the lostness of their condition. And so God sent a messenger of hope and the result is positive. Evidently, five, six, whatever it might be, generations later, the Ninevites had slipped back into their wicked ways, had grown substantially to become the largest city on earth, as best as we can tell. And it was the headquarters of the king, the most powerful king on earth by human standards. This was the superpower of the sixth, seventh, century BC. What do we learn about God from Jonah? We learn that if God has a choice, he'd rather you repent than judge you. 
This is not unique to Jesus. We know that Jesus often called people to repentance. But in the moral will of God, in the heart of God, what we learn about God from the scriptures, the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament and the God who has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That God in his moral heart would rather see conviction that leads to change than condemnation and damnation that leads to death. Now we can have a conversation right now about the perfect versus the permissive will of God or the sovereign versus the moral will of God. We could talk about, well, is God not sovereign over all things? Yes, he is. He's absolutely sovereign. His ultimate sovereign will is perfect. And everything that happens in human history is ultimately under the sovereign purview or authority of God. And yet at the same time, the scriptures introduce us to the heart of God. And sometimes God permits evil. In fact, obviously he does because it exists. And sometimes nasty things happen. And sometimes people never repent and they die in their sins. And that does not mean God is not in control. But in the moral will of God, God is working in the hearts of people to draw people unto himself. And these are things that we hold in tension. So we could talk about that for hours. And they, they, they at times seem contradictory or confusing, but it's part of Christian theology that we hold these things in tension. But here in this passage, really I want to focus in on the permissive will of God or the moral will of God. In other words, the heart of God. What is God's heart for the lost? And by extension, what is God's heart for you? What does God desire to see in you and in me and all of our brokenness? What is God looking for in us? Nahum has a message for us. And it begins with the underlying notion that your life is an act of divine generosity. You are the result of a generous act by God. God has blessed you with the gift of life. You're here. You survived this long. God has been generous to you every moment of your life from conception up till now. And even when that God calls us out for our sin and threatens us and warns us and cautions us, he is still demonstrating generosity to us. It's a blessing to be rebuked by God. It's a blessing to be warned by God. It's a blessing to be called out by God. And far too many of us don't understand that. We run from it. I think God's being mean. I don't like that passage. I don't want to listen to those verses. I want the soothing verses of the Bible. You ever have like scripture texts posted on the wall of your home? Or maybe if you open up your phone, maybe you have a scripture verse on your 
homepage or on the screen of your laptop or whatever it might be? What kind of verses do we like always pick to put on the walls of our homes and on the screens of our computers? We always pick the soothing verses of the Bible. I mean, Psalm 23 is everywhere. We love it. There was nothing wrong with the soothing passages of the Bible because God has given us many passages to soothe us when we are, life isn't good. But there's also a lot in the Bible that's, that's not soothing. It kind of rattles our cages. It shakes us up. And it's the same God delivering both the soothing words and the words of rebuke. But all of them, all of them, are delivered to us by a generous God that wants us to become more like Jesus. Let's get into Nahum. Some lessons that we can benefit from there and will bless us. Here's the question. What do we need to know and act on if we want to receive God's generous gifts? Here's the first thing you need to know about God. God is generous in his warnings. God is generous in his warnings. When God warns us, when he cautions us, he's doing it for our good. And so we would be well advised to listen when God delivers us a warning, a word of caution. In Nahum chapter 2, verse 1, The Bible reads, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. In a moment, God is going to unleash the fury of his judgment against the Ninevites for their evil. And this prophetic message is also being read and considered by the people of God who in part had been victimized by the Assyrians and in part were being divinely disciplined by God through the agency of the Assyrians. They're listening in. They're asking questions like, Lord, how long is this going to last? And they're asking questions like, why were we so rebellious to put ourselves in this position in the first place? They're asking both of those things. And God, in all of this, delivers this message about Nineveh. And it starts off by saying, the scatterer has come up against you. The term scatterer is a term used to describe a king that was about to conquer his opponents. He's going to scatter them as he wages war against them. Now, What's unusual about this is that every military commander that has ever lived knows that you never tip your enemy off in advance that you're about to attack. Sneak attacks are always more effective. They're always more effective. A lot of energy, a lot of time went into marketing during World War I and World War II. There was posters up. Loose lips, sink ships. Be careful what you say in the coffee shops. There could be German spies in the coffee shops. 
Don't talk about where your husband or your sons are at war. Loose lips sink ships. We need the element of surprise. Sneak attacks are always way more effective. The enemy knew that too. Why was Pearl Harbor so effective? Because it was a sneak attack. Entirely unexpected. How successful would it have been to destroy the Pacific fleet if the Japanese had sent a, a telegram a couple days earlier? Hey, just to let you know, we're sending a few hundred planes to destroy your fleet. They wouldn't have succeeded. The Americans would have had their anti-aircraft guns out. They would have had their planes mobilized. They wouldn't have succeeded. It was the sneak attack that brought down the American fleet in the Pacific Ocean. But here we have God telling his enemies in advance, I'm on my way. You better get ready. He's actually encouraging them to get ready. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. When I show up, I want you to be ready to fight. Why does God do that? We know that God's going to win. See, here's what you need to know about God. God knows he's going to win. So it makes no difference to him whether you have all the soldiers on the battlefield in advance or whether you're totally surprised by it. He's going to win because he's God. God always wins. Why then does God warn the Assyrians? Think about it. Because in warning them, God is desiring a change of heart. Just like when he sent Jonah 150 years earlier. He wants them to change. He doesn't want to have to wipe them out. In his heart, he desires contrition and repentance. Why does God warn us against sin? Why does God caution us against a life of disobedience? Why does God do that? Why is it when I'm reading through my Bible, I have to bump into all these scriptures that talk about what I shouldn't do. Don't do that. Don't do that. Like after a while, or it's kind of a little, little heavy. Give me some soothing scripture. Why does God do that? Because he's generous in his warnings. Why preach? Because he wants life change. Why rebuke us? Because he wants life change. Why does he discipline us? Because he wants life change. Why does God at times remove blessing or generosity? Because he wants life change. He removes the generosity of stuff or health or opportunity. But even in doing so, he's generously speaking into our lives words that are meant to transform us. God is generous in his warnings. This is why he warns the Ninevites through Jonah. This is why he warns the Ninevites through Nahum. Clean up your act. Clean up your act. Clean up your act. Let's consider some application. When we're reading our Bibles... We must always fight with the temptation. We must always fight against the temptation of going to the passages of the Bible that are strictly meant to comfort us. And there's lots of them there, and we should spend some time in those. But we cannot afford, if we're going to become more like Jesus, to skip over the parts that hurt. 
We cannot afford, if we're going to become more like Jesus, to skip over the parts that confront, that convict. And humanly speaking, it's possible to convince yourself, well, I don't like those because that kind of makes God sound mean. No. God speaks truth because he in his heart wants you to change. He wants you to become more like Jesus. And so he confronts us and he challenges us and he cautions us. And yes, it might hurt. It might be mildly offensive. It might be significantly offensive. But if we run from those passages of the Bible and simply lean into the ones that soothe us, we may overlook our own sin to our own detriment. Now, as I'm preaching this, it comes to my mind that, like you, when I'm listening to a sermon preached, that it's, it's actually easier to receive rebuke from a sermon than it is one-on-one. And we understand that. It's, it's less personal. And it feels like we made the choice to receive the rebuke instead of being at the receiving end of someone else's choice to rebuke us. But the Bible also calls us to open ourselves up to receiving rebuke from one another. And as the people of God, sometimes we are aware of sin in each other's lives that we may not fully see in our own lives. So the encouragement would be to make sure that you've positioned yourself in your Christian life so that you're known You're not hiding and pretending. That's very burdensome, by the way. It's heavy to hide and pretend. But position yourself for vulnerability, for transparency in your small group, in your accountability relationships. Be honest with people about your struggles. And then open yourself up to receive from them any rebuke or correction that you might require. This week, I met with some of our male staff, the guys that are pastors or are training up to be pastors and we do this every other friday or so we talk about matters pertaining to pastoral theology and practice and this week i was just talking about some things i've thought about in terms of how our personalities often affect the way we do ministry our strengths our weaknesses god uses our strengths and our weaknesses and shapes our ministries around those more often than not. And we talked about that in generalities. And then we did something that was a little, little uncomfortable. I asked for every guy in the room, there's five of us, to go around and identify a weakness in every other guy. And so I, I took the hits first and encouraged my brothers to speak truth into my life. Where, where are my areas of weakness? And surprisingly, it didn't take them very long to come up with several. And so they began to point out things. Well, we think maybe in this area, in this area. And there are four different things. And as I received them, they're right. I already know this. It may not be at the front of my mind, but it's back here. Like, I already know this. And the fact that they're noticing means I need to take it from back here and bring it up to the forefront. It may not feel good, but when you leave the room, it's like, I I actually feel kind of blessed. These guys spoke truth into my life. Now I have some stuff, some assignments to do this week. Now I have some things to work on more pointedly. This is life among God's people. So receiving rebuke or receiving a, a convicting message from the stage is one thing. 
But are you, have you established your life in such a way that you are willing to receive rebuke from your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do you tend to run from that? If you run from it, it may still be symptomatic of a desire to self-manage. It's never helpful. Or to protect yourself or to present yourself in an inauthentic way. And that may actually be something, a key that you need to kind of unlock, a door that you need to unlock in order to take yourself to the next level of Christian living. So I dare you, I dare you to reorganize your life so that you're allowing people to speak words of truth and rebuke into your life. This is a generous gift that God has given to us to help us to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's modeled in God's dealings with us. And so we should model it with one another. Secondly, you're going to like this. God is generous in restoration. And so be hopeful. God is delivering words of rebuke to Assyria. The Israelites are listening in. Two things that are probably rattling around in their minds, they've already stated. When is this going to end? And why were we so dumb to put ourselves in this position in the first place? Because while they were captured by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians were overly abusive, at the same time, they were being disciplined by God. Prophets had come many times before and told them, this is what's going to happen. It's going to happen. We're telling you, it's going to happen. They just kept doing it. But now we have these generous words of restoration that are supposed to give hope in verse 2. For the Lord is restoring the majesty. That's a powerful word. The majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Now, why would God not say, I'm going to restore to you the opportunity to get down on your knees and grovel at my feet. I'm God after all. Why would God not say, now that you've learned your lesson, you can get back to serving me. The generous heart of God goes this direction with it. I want to restore the majesty of my people. We are elevated by God above and beyond what we deserve. When we fail him, we fail ourselves. We demote ourselves. We become other than the people God has designed us to become as citizens of his kingdom. But in in restoring us, God actually wants to bring us back to the fullness of our status and stature before God. Think about that, church. He's restoring them two ways. First, by rescuing them from their enemy. And second, by ending the discipline that he had poured out on them. God is in the business of restoring his people. And he restores us because he wants to restore us to a position of royalty and majesty. He disciplines in order to correct, in order to bring us back to this glorious place he wants us to be, rather than to bring us to a place of condemnation. 
But here's what the devil and his forces and your flesh and society want to convince you of. God is mean. He wants you to grovel. He's heavy-handed. He's a cosmic killjoy. There's no fun in God. That's not God. God wants to restore us to a place of worship and leadership and usefulness and vitality and worship. Can you think of any biblical examples of this? One of the most powerful biblical examples of this is found in the life narrative of King David. King David comes out of obscure circumstances. Becomes the king of Israel. Has a vulnerability and a discernment and an insight about him that all of us should envy and aspire to. You see this in the book of Psalms. The arrangement of the Psalms, I believe, is intended to remind us of this. So we have Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, unnamed in their authorship, that call us into the glory of worship. And then we have Psalm 3, written by David. And Psalm 4 by David. And 5 by David. And 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. All the way up to 41. There's Maybe two or three psalms in there that are unnamed, but they're probably Davidic psalms as well. But we have psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm, almost 40 of them, penned by David, pouring out his heart to God, leading us in worship, calling us to ascend the holy hill, calling us to pour ourselves out before the Lord. They're incredible. They're divine scripture. Then you're reading through them like, man, this David guy, he's got quite the relationship with God. And then you get to Psalm 42. This is a good psalm, but where's David? And then Psalm 43. The world, where's David? And Psalm 44, no David. And Psalm 45, 46, 47, 48. Like, what in the world, where's David? Hadn't heard from David for a while. And Psalm 47 and 48 and 49. And I haven't heard from David for a while. And Psalm 50, I'm still not hearing from David. But then we get to Psalm 51. And all of a sudden, David is speaking again. But what David is speaking are words of contrition. He's pouring out his heart. He's repenting of his sin because in that silence, the reason why he was silent, the reason why he was not being used by God is because he had committed adultery and had a man's life taken. And his relationship with God then was Sick and diseased. And so this vital man, which was so useful to God, and who demonstrates through his psalm a heart of passion for God, there's nothing going on in his life of any value for a lengthy period of time until he repents. And then we start hearing from David again, over and over and over again. And then you fast forward to the book of Acts. And who would not want this on their tombstone? Or stated in their eulogy. And David was a man after God's own heart. How could you not want some of that in your life? 
I mean, this is what it all boils down to. I want a heart after God's and I want God to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But we don't get there just by reading the soothing verses of the Bible. We get there by opening our ears and our heart and letting down our guard and casting aside our pride and allowing God to speak generous words of warning and rebuke into our lives. That's how we get there. So we could say that the the greater we are in our humility, the greater we are in our spirituality, because in our humility, we have chosen to receive from the Lord words of life that can transform us. People often ask questions like, does God really care for me? I mean, he seems to be awfully hard on me lately. Does he really care for me? Those words of royalty which the Old Covenant people received are repeated for us under the New Covenant in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where it says of his church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, Why have you done this to us, Lord, and for us? Here's why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God calls us out of darkness, out of silence, out of rebellion to experience his love. And then to put us on a mission so that we might point people to the one that has transformed us. Because we're royalty. This means that we have an inheritance in heaven that will not fade away. Granted to us by the grace of God. It also means that we have a responsibility to represent our king. To not be traitors working for the other side. To not forget who's in charge but to surrender ourselves to the king. And further, it reminds us that we have access to his throne room through prayer. I'm going to read for you now a goodly chunk of scripture from Nahum chapter 2. And the, the purpose of this scripture is to teach us this truth, that if you don't acknowledge him, He'll take it all back. He's generous. But he's not a pushover. And if you don't acknowledge him, he'll take it all back. Before I read it to you, what would you say is the scariest verse you've ever read in the Bible? You think of some? The verses that really shake you up, that leave you lying awake at night thinking, oh, I better make some changes. I think we're going to find one in Nahum chapter 2. And next week, we're going to find the same verse in Nahum chapter 3. See if you can find it as I read this to you. This is a picture of God's war against the Ninevites. The shield of his mighty men is red. 
His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened and the palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! They cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and the lioness went. Where her cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Here we have imagery of a battle and the winner is God and God sends his troops in and he decimates this seemingly invincible city, dragging it down, cutting it off. The lion symbolizing the king with his lionesses, his many wives, and his princes, the cubs, who he's fed lavishly through his exploits in conquering other nations, are cut off. And then one of the most scary verses in scripture, I am against you declares the Lord. I never want to hear God say that about me. How about you? I never want God to say, Aaron, I, I am against you, declares the Lord. Because if that's true, I can tell you who loses. I lose. And God always wins. Now, this is a message primarily directed towards unbelievers. These are words of pending damnation and condemnation that God is delivering to them. But the Israelites, the believing community is listening in as well. And centuries later, we are too. And so while the Bible teaches us that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ, what the law was incapable of doing, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering for us. We know it. Romans 8, 1, 1, 2. 
while there's no condemnation, surely in our lives as followers of Christ, we can identify pieces of our lives, moments in time, maybe extended periods of time spanning months or years when we are not listening to God's words of warning. God is perhaps disciplining us even now. And he's not disciplining us because he hates our guts. He's disciplining us because his son died for us. So that we might live differently. And if we don't live differently, then we are living disgustingly. We have become traitors against the king of kings and the lord of lords. And we are serving the kingdom of darkness. So God's calling us back to a new way of living. When he warns us of pending judgment. What happens when God takes issue with us? Here are some of the results of standing against God. There are many, but here are some. Verse 6, the palace melts, meaning a loss of power. Think of all the nations. You studied history. Think of all the nations that have come and gone because they lived in abject rebellion against God. Where is the power of Egypt? Where is the power of Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome? Where is the power of the Aztecs? Where is the power of the Ottomans? They're all gone or diminished. Who's next? China? The U.S.? Canada? As we increasingly push God out and reserve the moral teachings of God for churches and actually legislate against the things of God and openly endorse the things of the devil? How much longer will this nation stand? Because the story of human history is essentially a story of grace, unresponded to with rebellion, and then a story of subsequent destruction. That's history for you in a sentence. When you rebel against God, you lose. Might take a hundred years, might take a thousand years, but you will lose. We need to consider this also in our own lives. If we're building our own little palace, it will melt away. Verse 7, second consequence, the choice queen is stripped of her garments. Royal robes, gone. Take the crown off. We're taking you into captivity. That's shame and that's embarrassment. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know what this is like. When you live in sin, it is shameful and it's embarrassing when you're convicted of it. You know No water, nobody can stop it. They try to stop the water, it's running away. Loss of life. Verse 9, the wealth is taken from them. First Timothy 6, 7 also says, for we brought nothing into this world and we're going to take nothing with us. You're born naked. Look at a little baby, naked. Doesn't bring anything into the world. And that's how you exit. How do we know that's true? Because we've rediscovered the pyramids of Egypt. Talk about a religion 
of lies. Let's spend the equivalent of billions of dollars building a colossal tomb and packing it full of the corpses of other people, of animals, of wealth, of gold, of chariots, of boats, of food, of honey. Let's pack it full because we're going to need it for the next life. And lo and behold, people start digging them up 3,500 years later. And guess what we find? It's all still there. You can't take any of it with you. We enter the world naked and we depart naked. And likewise, when we live for wealth, God will take it away. Verse 10, hearts melt. Total loss of hope. Verse 11 and 12, the the lion's pride is destroyed. The kings and the princes of the world are ruined. I am against you, says the Lord. You never want to hear these words uttered if the you is you. To respond to this means and requires that we choose not to take God's blessings for granted, but that we live every day with a profound Precise understanding of how generous God is and wants to continue to be. And we thank him for that. And we thank him for rescuing us when we're foolish. And we call upon him in our praise and we thank him for his generosity. But we also listen to his words of warning. Lest we forfeit some of the blessings that God has for his people. I would like for us to pray right now. And there's probably three kinds of prayers that need to be prayed in this room. First kind of prayer is directed towards the man or woman or the young person that has never, for the first time, surrendered themselves to God in salvation. That prayer is going to be composed of something like this. Lord, I am wrong. I'm a sinner. I've been living my life of my own strength. And I want to confess that to you. I want to confess. I may, may, may even have used you for my own benefit. But I want to surrender myself to you. And I want to believe that Jesus Christ died in my place and my behalf for my sin. And that while I committed spiritual crimes against you, Jesus did the time on the cross, and I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That's a prayer that needs to be prayed by some of you, starting now. Others of us that know Jesus need to pray this kind of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your generosity. You have been so good to me. And maybe it's been too long since I've told you that. You have been so, so good good to me. I thank you for the generosity that you grant us in the soothing passages of scripture and in the rebuke. And then the third kind of prayer, which could be integrated with the second kind, is a prayer of apology and repentance for those of you that know Jesus. Because if the Spirit of God is in you, and the Bible is before you, Chances are you already know 
the areas of your life that are dishonoring to the Lord. You already know it. You have the Spirit of God in you. You know it. Confess those sins to the Lord and find freedom. Harbor them. Hold on to them. There's no freedom in life there. There's just loss, folks. There's loss. There's silence. Confess your sins to the Lord and know that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness.